0: This is KABF in Little Rock 88.3, the voice of the people in Central Arkansas. It's time for Radio Cal's, a weekly program from the Central Arkansas Library System. Every Wednesday from 6 to 6.30 p.m. here on KABF 88.3 FM, We'll share with you conversations with interesting Arkansans on primary sources, chewing the fat with Rex and Paul, and much, much more. We invite you to let us know what else you want to hear by contacting us at radiocals at This program is presented by the Butler Center for Arkansas Studies and the Cows Communications and Public Relations Department. For more information about Radio Cal's, please visit the Butler Center's blog at butlercenter.org. Hello, and welcome to Primary Sources, a featured production of Radio Cal's. Here on Primary Sources, we focus on people who are making a difference in Little Rock and Arkansas, some you might have heard of and some you haven't heard of but probably want to know about. Check out cowsorg podcasts for a free podcast of Primary Sources interviews.
1: This is Brian Robertson, and and we are in the Arkansas Studies Institute building doing an interview for the Arkansas-Vietnam War Project.
2: My name is Eddie Pinnell. I was born here in Little Rock, Arkansas, November 27,
1: 1950. Okay, Eddie, tell tell me a little bit about um, your parents and where you grew up and went to school and all that good stuff.
2: Okay, my my father was from Mississippi. My mother from Oklahoma. They met in Little Rock after World War II, and got married and had me in November of 1950. And what were their names? Uh, My father's name was Eddie Dale Pinnell. My mother was uh, Evelyn Jane. Her maiden name was Dykes. She had been previously married to a guy named Thomas. And uh, this was her second marriage and my father's second marriage.
1: Okay. Uh, where did you grow up in the little what part I of the I was moment? born over here
2: at 710 Wright Avenue. And uh, my father died when I was five. And uh, my mother raised me, a half brother and two half sisters on her own, uh, until I was 10. And then she remarried uh, for the third time. And uh, we moved over on 2200 Battery Street. I went to Wrightsville Elementary, one through four. I went to Mitchell Elementary, five and six, Westside Junior High School. And then Little Rock Central until my senior year, 1968, when I dropped out and joined the Marine Corps. Now, what compelled you to join the Marine Corps? Well, um, some of the factors were, and and I guess the the biggest factor was I had a stepfather I didn't get along with. Um, he uh, he resented me, and I grew to resent him, and it just wasn't a real happy uh, family life. And other than. Uh, Uh, Me, I would say that they got along fairly well, but he and I didn't get along well, and uh, so I asked my mother to sign me in the Marine Corps when i just turned 17, and uh, on November 27th, I was 17, 1968. On December 27th, she signed me into the Marine Corps a month later, and then I left for boot camp in San Diego, California, on January 2nd, 1968. I was 67, yeah. 1968. So what made you choose the Marine Corps out
1: of all the branches?
2: Well, uh, a couple of reasons. Um, I wanted to be, I volunteered to go to Vietnam, and that was my goal, to go to Vietnam and fight. I, just, I had heard uh, President Johnson address the nation in 1965, talking about the Gulf of Tonkin incident that um, one of our uh, destroyers had been fired upon by a North Vietnamese patrol boat. and. Uh, he used that excuse, you know, as you know, to put 500,000 combat troops into Vietnam. Before that, we just had advisors in there. And uh, so that that got me fired up, and uh, my father was a paratrooper in World War II. My stepfather was also in World War II. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a quarter Cherokee then I've got some uh, warriors in my bloodline, and for whatever reason, I just felt like uh, I wanted to get away from home. I wanted to join the Marine Corps. I wanted to be in the best fighting unit uh, that I could possibly be in uh, knowing that I was volunteering to go to Vietnam. I wanted to be sure somebody had my back and I'd have theirs. And um, and because of the Gulf of Tonkin incident, and uh, I wasn't real bright as a young man. I'm still not that bright, but <laughs> I don't think i make that mistake again. <laughs> that. So
1: what was um, boot camp like?
2: Well, boot camp was quite an awakening. Um, you know, I was in great shape at 17, you know, didn't have an ounce of fat on me and, um, you know, played uh, baseball and some football and some basketball. Um, uh, growing up, played in the City League, and, you know, I was in pretty good shape. And, uh, but I wasn't really that prepared for a Marine Corps boot camp. I mean, um, you, you drilled all day, every day. You did go to some classes. You did obstacle courses. You ran and marched all the time. And um, and you ate three square meals a day, but you ate everything you get your hands on because you felt like you were starving to death. I went in boot camp at 134 pounds and I came out of ITR uh, after boot camp at 155 pounds in the greatest shape of my life. And the uh, Marine Corps does a good job of taking young men and, and uh, tearing them down individually and then bringing them up together as a unit. Uh, that's Spirit of Corps and the Marine Corps is, is unique, I think, to all the branches of the service and and that starts in boot camp.
1: Yeah, definitely. So, wh- where did you go after boot camp?
2: After boot camp, I went to um, uh, ITR Infantry Training Regiment in Camp Pendleton, California. And I was first squad leader in boot camp. I was a meritorious, one of five that were meritoriously promoted from buck private to private first class out of boot camp. And um, you know, they knew I wanted to go to Vietnam, but I, I'm assuming because I was only 17 years old, they didn't send me there. They sent me to um, an Army Supply School in Fort Lee, Virginia. And oh, I was brokenhearted. <laughs> but it wasn't that long of a, a, a class, and I graduated first out of that class. And then I knew I was going to Vietnam, but no, the Marine Corps and in their infinite wisdom sent me to Cherry Point, North Carolina, an air wing. And um, the day I checked into to that company, I got promoted to Lance Corporal. And uh, by then I was married and had a, a young wife, and we lived with the uh, director of the Red Cross that was the director of the base at, at Cherry Point. He had an apartment in his house. We lived with him because of the all, all the on-house um, uh, billets were uh, full, so he rented us uh, his upstairs apartment, his house in Newborn, North Carolina, and that was that was a real blessing. But um, I, I didn't want to be a part of the air wing, and so I began to request mast, we call it the Marine Corps, if you want to change your duty station you have to go to the commanding general and and tell the general why you want to uh, uh, to be moved reassigned not an easy process you go from your company commander to your battalion commander and so on up the chain of command and uh, I was all the way up to the very top getting ready to talk to the commanding general when the career planner came to me said uh, uh, Last corporal Pannell, I know uh, you want to go to Vietnam. I said that's what I joined the Marine Corps for. He said, "Well, we have an opening for Vietnamese language school in Monterey, California, and you scored high on the language aptitude part of the aptitude test they give you in boot camp, and not many people scored high enough to to go to this school, and the ones that that do don't want to go to this school, and I said, send me, I'll, I'll go to Vietnam, and, and then surely after I graduate from that." 47 week and wow. uh, South Vietnamese language course, they'll, they'll send me to Vietnam. So that's how I got from Cherry Point to the, the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California. I reported there um, early January 1969, and um, they promoted me to corporal. I was a squared away Marine. You know, cool. I did what I was supposed to do, I did what I was told to do, but uh, I also wanted to go to Vietnam and I didn't make any bones about it. And um, but I always scored high on the, the, the cutting scores that they gave us at the time. And a 4.0 was perfect, and uh, there's three different categories, and I never had more than, less than 2.40s and one 3.9. So they promoted me meritoriously to corporal when I checked in there in January. We started with a class of about 30, um, all, all different branches of the service, uh, Marine Corps, Air Force, Army, Navy, they, uh, they had people there from the State Department, from uh, different uh, CIA kind of uh, uh, NSA uh, departments, of the government. Uh, they taught every known language in the world there, and even some of the dead languages were, were taught there. Uh, so it was quite a quite a school, um, and I was uh, happy to be there after about a month. I mean, it was really hard at first, and uh, we only graduated 10 in our class, uh, after starting with about 30, about 20 of them just couldn't get it. You know, Vietnamese is a sing-song language. Your voice goes up or down, level, uh, up and around, or down sharp. Spelled the same way means five different things depending on the accent mark. And so uh, I don't know if I have an ear for music. I'm not really talented as a musician or anything. But after about a month, something just clicked in my head and I got it. And, um, and I could speak uh, the language and, and still speak the language pretty well although not quite as well as I did when I first got to Vietnam after language school. I'm getting old, forgot, and don't, don't <laughs> use it uh, quite as often as I used to, of course.
1: <clears throat> so while you're all stateside, were you following what was going on in the war?
2: In, in boot camp, they used to give us the body counts. I mean, mm-hmm. every week uh, they would tell us how many uh, Marines had been lost. And uh, again, that fuels the fire, you know. you your fellow Marines or uh, we were losing a lot in 68 and 69 um, and um, You want to do something about that if you could if you thought you could and of course the Marine Corps makes you think you can you know and um, So um, yeah, I was gung-ho very gung-ho very uh, pro-war uh, at the time uh, I had a stepbrother I have a stepbrother he was in the army at the time and he was in uh, Turkey and he was uh, Uh, Morse code expert. They sent him to Morse code school. I think in Massachusetts somewhere, and then he was up in the mountains of Turkey and Listening to Russian communications well He got orders for Vietnam, but I was already in Vietnam at the time and he sent me a letter said man You need to write me back and tell him you're my brother and (laughs) and so he didn't have to go to Vietnam because of me And that was that was probably a good thing, but I was very gung-ho in in the beginning
1: Yeah. were you able to I know you were busy with all your training and everything, but were you able to watch the television newscasts of the war very much?
2: You know, there were uh, like on the weekends. Uh, we we did have a a day room as an army base where I was at. Uh, they had World War II army barracks, all wood, uh, and I was a corporal, so I shared a room with uh, another corporal, and then there was open squad bay, and. Um, all the junior uh, non-coms were out in the squad bay where they'd have four to a cubicle. I had a little bit of privacy and, of course, my wife was there for a while and then she got pregnant and came back to Little Rock to to be with her uh, family and to have our son. But um, when I was there, uh, on the weekends, we got to watch some TV and um, during the day, we went to school eight hours a day. We had native Vietnamese instructors. They all were master's level or higher uh, PhDs. And uh, the first day we were in class, they said, this will be the last day you speak English in the classroom. Hmm. Starting tomorrow, you'll speak nothing but Vietnamese in this classroom. And when you go out on break or go to lunch, you can speak English, but not in the classroom. Uh, We had the old eight-track tapes, reel-to-reel tapes. Hmm. And you would listen through headphones to a dialogue that you're looking at and reading at the same time like 30 sentences and about 30 new vocabulary words every night. And you would repeat, listen to the Vietnamese speaker in your ear and you'd re- repeat the sentence in front of you as he was saying in your ear, trying to get that tone down, that accent down. And, um, and then the next morning you would get up in front of the class and you would recite the dialogue with another student and then you'd change positions in the dialogue and, and recite the dialogue again. And, uh, you know, we studied Vietnamese language, history, culture, customs, religions, interrogation. We, we had a lot crammed into that eight hours a day for 47 weeks, but it was a very intense and, and very good course. But in answer to answer your question, yes, I did I get to see some of the, uh, you know, the Tet Offensive in 68 and 69 during boot camp and ITR and, um, uh, and then in language school on the weekends, yeah.
1: So what did you think about basically kind of watching the war on TV?
2: Well, again, I was young and um, naive, but uh, I thought it was a just war. I thought we should be there. You know, I, I knew about the domino effect, and we didn't want all these Southeast Asian countries becoming communist countries and uh, you know, heard the political propaganda, I didn't know it was at the time, about all the reasons, justifying all the reasons we should be in there. And I didn't know too many years later you know the real uh, history of, of the war I didn't realize that Ho Chi Minh was our ally in World War Two that we supplied him with weapons to fight the Japanese that after the war he wrote a letter to our president asking for support of an independent and uh, uh, free Vietnam although it would be socialist or a communist country uh, they wanted their right to govern themselves and of course uh, our uh, country turned them down and said, no, we're going to let the French go back in there. And they were our main allies, I guess, or one of our main allies in World War II. And uh, they were a colony of the French. And so we were going to support the French. Yeah. And the rest is history. I think we made a bad blunder there. Yeah. Big yeah. mistake. Yeah.
1: So when did you actually um, go to Vietnam? When did
2: you leave? I shipped out um, like the 4th of March, 1970. I graduated in, in January of 70 from language school, went went to uh, jungle warfare training at Camp Pendleton, uh, and then went to uh, Okinawa. And uh, checked in Okinawa on um, March the 6th, I think, um, and um, got promoted to sergeant, Maritola was promoted to sergeant the same day I checked in. And in the Marine Corps, you know, wisdom again, they attached me to a truck company, um, instead of just uh, normally when you went to Vietnam, you, you went in, you stored all your gear in Okinawa, and it was just a matter of a few days before you shipped on out to Vietnam. Well, They decided they were going to keep me in, in Vietnam, and uh, I mean in Okinawa, and so again I I have to go through the process again. I said I'm not staying here. You know I volunteered to go to Vietnam. I'm going to Vietnam, and so I started the process of going through the. Um, Meritorious. I mean, the the requesting mass to get off the island with the General 3rd Marine Division in Okinawa. <laughs> and by the time I started getting through a couple of the steps of the chain of command, they, they sent sent me on to Vietnam. So I got to Vietnam in, in March of 1970, but it wasn't, I stayed in Okinawa like three weeks.
1: Yeah. So where did you go in in Vietnam?
2: Went into Da Nang, flew, flew on a C-130 from Okinawa to Subic Bay, Philippines, and then to uh, Da Nang, Vietnam, and um, I remember uh, when we opened that uh, that door to the C-130. I mean, the the trip over was quite a, a challenge as well. You're sitting on straps like a, a you know seats that you would have at uh, you know on the back porch or a ball, uh, the beach or somewhere. Those mm-hmm. kinds of chairs with mm-hmm. the, the strapping and you sit on straps like that. Um, uh, the head or the, the urinal was a round hole in the bulkhead or the wall mm-hmm. of the C-130. There's no privacy there. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're bouncing around in the C-130 trying to hit that <laughs> hole. That was quite a contest. Um, but we got into Da Nang. And then when they opened uh, that door and we walked off of that C-130, the first thing that you felt was the heat. The heat was like a blast furnace. I mean, it just hit you in the face and, and, and took your breath away. Uh, you weren't prepared for a hundred and something degree heat, and um, and then as we're walking off the tarmac there into the uh, the building, you know over on the side you you, you see thirty green uh, bags, and somebody said, "What is that?" And there's a guy out there with the garden hose washing these bags off, and somebody said, "Those boys are going home. They're body bags." It's okay. And then, it, I was 19 by then. Uh, no, I was still 18. Um, I didn't turn, no, I was 19 in, in 1969. So I was 19 years old and then I'm thinking, what have I gotten myself into? People are really dying over here. This is not a John Wayne movie, you know? And uh, so they, uh, <clears throat> they held us there at uh, uh, Danang. Uh, there was a Marine Corps unit there that was in charge of security and um, the second night we got hit by rockets. And they were always lobbing rockets into the air, air base there trying to hit C-130s. They, they kept the, the, the fighter jets and helicopters and stuff under a, a domed, reinforced concrete kind of um, uh, shelter. But uh, the C-130s and different things, they just parked them on the tarmac. And they get lucky. You couldn't be real accurate with the, the, the uh, 122 millimeter rockets, but if you throw enough of them in there, you can do some damage. And mm-hmm. So they tried to um, uh, do as much damage as they could to the air wing as possible. And we got hit with rockets the second night. And uh, I'm a sergeant. And I'm, I'm the only sergeant in this group of guys. <laughs> and uh, the... Uh, uh, the rockets start coming and somebody yells incoming and uh, you know, right outside the hooch we're in there's a bunker and uh, so you, it's so hot you sleep naked with just a poncho liner over you uh, your underwear would get so drenched with sweat that it would stick to you and, and you'd, you'd get what we called uh, jungle rot it, it's like a, uh, a, a terrible uh, itch you, you can't satisfy it you scratch it you just bloody yourself up and uh, anyway, so I dove out of this hooch uh, into this bunker with my poncho liner, and and some of the guys that had been there uh, were with us. And uh, you know, they they come out, they're putting their flak jacket and helmet on, and they're going to a place in the wire where we're supposed to go. And um, I'm the only sergeant there, and I'm naked in the bunker with <laughs> a poncho liner around me. So that was. <laughs> really embarrassing. I didn't do that anymore, but uh, that was my first reaction when the rockets started hitting and somebody yelled, here, in- incoming, to, to jump into that bunker. But <clears throat> I went up to Camp Books, which was not, not that far out of the, the air base. When you left the air base, you, you went to a, a Four Corners intersection, and you turned right. Highway 1 ran all the way from North Vietnam or from the DMZ, uh, but before the war, North Vietnam from Hanoi all the way down the coast, all the way down mm-hmm. to, to Saigon. And uh, that was Highway 1. And you turn north, you go towards uh, the Namo Bridge. Uh, and right before you got to the Namo Bridge was my camp books. And uh, if you went across the Namo Bridge, then you went up into Haivon Pass, going up to Phu to Bai and Hui and Dong Ha up on the DMZ. Uh, so I was uh, not that far outside today, just a few clicks. And um, if you went straight west, you'd go into the uh, headquarters, uh, 3rd Marine Division there uh, at, uh, oh, what was the mountain that we called it? But uh, it was 1st first first or 3rd Marine Division headquarters, depending on whoever was there at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, then you could go south, and you could go to Hoi An, um, we had a POW camp just south of uh, da Nang, uh on the way to Hoi An, and uh, or you could go on down into Hill 55, Hill 65, Hill 10. Those areas down there all all Marine Corps, and um, so, but I was not too far outside Danang.
1: Yeah. So, what what was your job once you actually got into Vietnam? Well.
2: Um, I became the non-commissioned officer in charge of the S-5 civilian affairs section. So my job was to win the hearts and minds of the Vietnamese people. We had 10 hamlets around our area. Um, and uh, I would take a corpsman and a couple of security guards and go to a different village uh, every day to treat the sick. And uh, I would interpret for the corpsman and, and then the security make sure nobody snuck up on us. But uh, uh, that was uh, my main job, uh, I did that. Um, we had uh, refugees, Vietnamese refugees, coming up river or out of the mountains to get out of the fighting that didn't have a place to stay. And um, we would build what we call New Life Hamlets. Um, I built MedCap stations to treat sick folks in. I built Hamlet headquarters for the Hamlet chief to have an office. and. Uh, I built a school uh, for the kids uh, on this island and uh, the uh, the South Vietnamese government works really slow. Um, but the only way you could get that kind of material was to request it through channels and when I first got there I requested a lot of tin, a lot of 2x4s, 4x4s, four plywood, um, concrete and um, we dug wells. and. You know, try to find fresh water, good water, and all kinds of things like that. Uh, started duck farms, pig farms, trying to get uh, anything we could get to going where they could feed themselves and uh, growing rice. And uh, you know, there was always something going on. We did propaganda uh, uh, films uh, in the villages at at sometimes in, in the evenings, and. Uh, you know, just trying to let the, the people know that we weren't uh, the bad guys, that we were there to help uh, keep them uh, democratic, although that we, they weren't really that democratic. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we were there to, to help them, to keep them from being uh, a communist country and that uh, we cared about them and, and wanted to, um, to help them in every way we could and that was my main job.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So what was it like Interacting with them on a more of a personal level.
2: You know, I, I really enjoyed it. I uh, I mean, I spoke Vietnamese better than uh, most of the people that I worked with. Most of the people I worked with were not literate in, in Vietnamese, couldn't read or write, uh, not well educated at all. Uh, fishermen, farmers, uh, were very poor, and um, and I I really enjoyed it. I, I really thought at the time that I was making a difference. That I uh, and I still believe that I did help a lot of people, even though. The ultimate at- outcome wasn't what we were trying to accomplish at the time. I don't think that was the troops' fault. I, I think that was our politicians' uh, fault. But uh, they got us into it, and then we didn't get out in a very good way, and we lost that war. It's yeah. pretty plain and simple. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, I-, I thought I was making a difference. I thought I was helping some folks, and um, I-, I treated folks as as well as I, I could, the way I wanted to be treated. I tried to treat them with respect and dignity and um, did as much as I could to help them under the circumstances. And uh, that was a little bit different, I think, uh, uh, contact with the Marines and GIs than, than they had uh, on some time, during some of the circumstances they came in contact with other military, it wasn't always a, a pleasant experience. I don't think.
1: Right. So, how did you feel going from being a, a gung ho kid who wanted to go off to war to suddenly you're you're in Vietnam, but you you have a
2: very different job. You know, I I don't I don't think um, it didn't happen overnight. My my personal transformation, but. Um, <clears throat> it didn't take me very long to realize that we weren't really trying to win the war you know it was a battle of um, uh, political uh, what we're allowed to do and what we're not allowed to do do we have to get permission to fire uh, once we take fire from a certain place or location Um, do we drop bombs for a day or two or a week but stop and negotiate, and you know, it it uh, it became fairly evident to me that we weren't committed. Our politicians weren't committed to winning the war. Uh, I'm I'm very certain that the Marines and and the GIs were committed to winning the war. I mean, we lost what 58,000 men over there, and uh, you know, that's one of the things that really really hurt me when I came home. That. Um, I was trying to find some reasoning, you know, why we were even in that war once I found out the Gulf of Tonkin incident didn't happen, that um, we lost 58,000 troops. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to say that, that their lives weren't lost in vain, but I, I couldn't find the answer to that for, for a long time. And um, maybe I still don't have that answer, but I, at least I learned to cope with it after about 10 years, and and some of the guys that came back I don't think ever learned how to cope with it. Thank Uh, thank you for this opportunity, Brian. Yeah, thanks.
0: I appreciate it. You've been listening to Primary Sources on Radio CALS, a production of the Central Arkansas Library System, its Arkansas History Department, the Butler Center for Arkansas Studies, and the CALS Communications and Public Relations Department. For more information, please visit cals.org and butlercenter.org. Our producer is Glenn Whaley. Production manager is Shelly Stormo. Voices by Jasmine Jobe and John Miller. Engineering and editing by Anna Lancaster and Shelly Stormo. This is KABF in Little Rock, 88.3, the voice of the people in Central Arkansas.